This is the Weekly You Demon. Sit back with a sarsaparilla and enjoy. Episode 59, releasing this on Sunday, January 19th, another significant feast day of a saint. (laughs) Yeah, don't worry, the Weekly Demon's not going to become a saint podcast, there are some of those out there already, Um, this is not going to become one of them. I won't even continue to open up with saints like I have these past two weeks, but I tell you, it has crossed my mind. I would just pick a saint every week open with him or her, and then launch from there into other topics. Quite frankly, specific saints are just a biography in general. It's a, great word, it's a great way to remove writer's block and get the process started. But no, that's not the direction. It's just kind of a fluke that two weeks in a row we're starting with a saint. And today's saint is Saint Macarius of Egypt. At least in the Eastern Orthodox Church, I don't think the Roman Catholic Church acknowledges him as a saint. He's one of the guys who followed St. Anthony into the desert, like we talked about in the last episode, and he became one of the greatest among all of them. He lived until he was 90 years old. I don't know what that is in dog years or (laughs) in 20th century, but that's pretty freaking old. He died in 390, which makes him slightly uh, a younger contemporary of Anthony the Great. You know, it's, it's odd that the Eastern Orthodox Church really seems to celebrate desert saints in January. And the the Roman Catholic calendar has quite a few as well. And, and, you know, (laughs) I have not gone through and looked at every month and said, okay, there's this many desert saints in January, this much, this many in July. I have not done that. But boy, it seems like there are a lot of them in January. January in the Northern Hemisphere is the coldest of all months, and the desert is the hottest of all areas. So it seems kind of incongruous. You know, but is it? I'm not convinced it is just a coincidence. I mean, not only do you have Anthony, then Athanasius, then Macarius, back to back to back. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a coincidence. Because January in the Northern Hemisphere is desert-like. I mean, it sucks out there. <laughs> it's like it sucks to me in the desert when it's 120 degrees. Nothing to eat, nothing to drink, but it's really quiet in the solitude. There is intense solitude and silence out there in January. I mean, I love going outside in January, no doubt about it. If the wind's blowing, yeah, it's a little rough. And if it's raining, then yeah, it's out. <laughs> Cold January rain just sucks. And I think I think people know this. I mean, I think people know that it's quiet out there in January and they crave silence. A few years ago, I was talking with an old childhood friend of mine who we were friends throughout high school. He was really getting into ice fishing. I was like, what the frick? I <laughs> said, so you go out there in that little shanty, you all grow out a spot in the ice, you drop your line in, and you just sit there hoping that fish bites. I said, I don't get it. it. sounds boring. And he wasn't having it. He wasn't having it. He point blank said, he goes, hey, it's quiet. It's quiet, man. <laughs> it's peaceful. I don't care if a single fish bites. I just like being out there. I'm into that. I would say that's just another instance of the supernatural manifesting itself in something as mundane as ice fishing. Now, I guess if you're out there ice fishing with your buddies and you got the TV on and <laughs> it's really loud and you're getting stone drunk, 
that's a different matter. And I, I think he does that too on occasion. And that's all right. <laughs> but he point blank said, and this is not, you know, this isn't some guy who's itching to be a monk as far as I know, itching to go off into the desert and pray. This is an ordinary dude, just a good guy who's saying, hey, sometimes I want to be out there in that shanty for three hours at a time and nothing but sitting there, maybe a fish a bite. He's seeking silence. He's seeking stillness. And silence is always a good thing. It's one of the few things in the world you can say that about. Of course, what you do in the silence can be good or bad. You can be a cat burglar. You can be praying. Okay. But that dual silence, both external and internal at the same time, it's a situation we ought to all strive for as often as possible. I would say it's as hard to get too much silence as it is to get too many vegetables or to stretch too much. I mean, there's some things you just can't do enough of. Getting silence, eating vegetables, and stretching. I'd put them all in that category. And I guess at some level, you could eat too many vegetables or you could stretch too much till you pop all your ligaments or something. And I suppose you can get too much silence. I, I just don't know. <laughs> it reminds me of... uh you know, too much silence, Thomas Merton, when he was thinking about becoming a Trappist monk, he was just thinking about it, you know, never ever talk. The Trappist monks don't talk. <laughs> he said he's actually thinking, will my, will my vocal cords stop working <laughs> at some point? He goes, these are the type of foolish things that you start thinking about when you're looking at a vocation. So if you, if you doubt me on the whole silence thing, I, I've been going through this book by Cardinal Seurat, or Robert Seurat, S-I-R-A-H, The Power of Silence. I'm only about halfway through it, and I'm, to be quite honest, I'm in kind of like a, a dullish part of the book that's just not speaking to me, which is odd, because the first, the first couple of chapters, you know, just really spoke to me loudly, which, I mean, it's paradoxical since it's a book about silence. But I'll just read to you a couple of his quotes that kind of, I think, bears out what I'm saying, that you just can't get too much silence. We need to cultivate silence and to surround it with an interior dyke. That's like the Holland dyke, not the lesbians. Another quote, silence is always the enemy of futile prospects, small talk, and affectations. You know, something like that, I mean, to unpack that takes a long time. Enemy of futile prospects. What exactly does it mean there? Enemy of futile prospects, you think, thinking internally, you're just, you're not thinking, well, here's what could have been, here's what might be. He's like, no, you just go silent, you're not thinking about all those type of things. But it's also, the enemy of small talk, which is an entirely different thing. You know, he packs them into one sentence, but they're different things. And small talk and silence being enemies, I'm into that because silence is good. It's the enemy of small talk, therefore small talk is bad. And I detest small talk. And I <laughs> went through this on the introversion, extroversion podcast I did. Boy, boy, that was probably episode 20 or so. I like keeping the grease. <laughs> I like keeping the the social wheels greased. Hello, how are you doing? How's your mom? You know, how are the kids doing? Little things like that. That just that just keeps the the social wheels lubricated. That's good. But man, standing there for I don't know, more than say four seconds. <laughs> no, I I'd say just standing there talking for more than thirty seconds over a minute. That turns into small talk. That's one reason I just always hated youth sports because you stand on the sidelines and you'd always stand to someone who feels like they got talked the whole time. You got to keep talking back to them and 
back and forth, back and forth about really nothing. And it's just small talk, and I just hate it. And <laughs> Cardinal Seurat hates it too, puts me in good company. And he also says, it's the enemy of affectations. Again, something totally different than small talk and feudal prospects, but he jams me in the same sentence. I think that's just really neat, but you know, affectation. Yeah, it makes sense. If you're putting on airs something that you're not, that's no doubt a, a product of some sort of internal noise that makes you want to be something that you're really not. The closer we are to the Holy Spirit, the more silent we are. And the farther we are from the Spirit, the more garrulous we are. <laughs> makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable doing this podcast. <laughs> Christ is the one master who can teach us to pray. And to pray is to love and to stay with Jesus in silence and interior solitude. I have these things I've marked on my Kindle, and I just have a bajillion highlights. But over and over again, he's pointing out that silence ought to not just be something we cultivate once in a while, but some, something that we constantly cultivate. As I've mentioned in the podcast, your whole life ought to be a type of prayer, just like your whole life ought to be a type of play. Silence goes hand in hand with that prayer. In fact, you might say, play leads to pray, which leads to silence, or silence leads to pray, which helps you play. They, they all kind of go together. It's in that silence, and I'm struggling with this concept, to be honest with you, but it's in that silence that you're, that you're going to find that existential gap. And again, it's a broken record. I get it. I, I understand that. But, when you're silent internally and externally, you're not seeking the subject, you're not seeking the, the object. You're just kind of getting kind of suspended. It's the place to be, and I don't think you can get too much of it. Of course, you, you cannot deny the subject-object. I've pointed that out in the last episode. You don't want to be like those Hindu monks who go out into the Ganges <laughs> letting the crocodiles eat them. There is a subject and object, but going back to what I said a couple minutes ago, you can't get too much silence. You can't get too much existential gap either. You're going to get noise. You're going to get subject. You're going to get object. Worrying about not getting enough subject, not getting enough object, not getting enough noise is like Thomas Merton, you know, worrying about losing his vocal cords. <laughs> it just ain't going to happen. Kind of reminds me of Nassim Taleb. Nassim Taleb, the guy is brilliant. He knows... <laughs> apparently everything about freaking history you give him any current event he'll have something insightful to say about it and he doesn't listen to the news he doesn't read the news all he does is read philosophers economists people who interest him from history that's all he reads and his old premises if it's truly newsworthy it's going to find its way to me one way or the other as max picard pointed out in his book the world of silence Noise pervades the world, especially in the modern age. He called it radio noise. He goes, radio noise is everywhere. The news is everywhere. Noise is everywhere. Subject object is everywhere. Therefore, you should relentlessly try to shut those things out. Don't freak out and stress out about it. Go, I got to shut out the noise, whatever. No, but you can't get too much silence. You can't get too much existential gap. I can't unless like you're the Hindu monk, I guess, you know. Just like, yeah, you could stretch too much. You could eat too many vegetables, I guess, where you can't hold your bowels in at all. Like, so it is con conceivable that you can stretch too much. You can eat too many vegetables. You can get too much silence. You can shut out subject object too much. But I, it's scarcely conceivable in the modern world. 
Therefore, I'd, I'd say constantly strive for these things. I want to mention a group of people who understood this whole thing about cold and silence and contemplating God, who used the winter like the desert monks used the sand. Russian hermits. Russia has a very long history of people leaving Moscow and the urban areas to go north. Mystics of the Northern Forest is what George Fedotov calls them. Fedotov was like a Russian scholar and expert, put together like a three- I think it's a three-volume set of Russian spirituality. I it's out of print. I have two of the volumes. I never never got the, the very first volume. I bought the second volume because it had that great book in it, The Way of the Pilgrim, which is just, just a charming little book about a guy who learns the Jesus Prayer and then goes around saying it constantly, walking around Russia, talking to different people. It's a very simple book. It's almost like WTF as a wise thing as a spiritual classic, but it is. That was the driving story, I'm not sure what you'd call it, but like the leitmotif that, that drove the narrative in J.D. Salinger's book, Franny and Zoe. J.D. Salinger became extraordinarily famous with his book, Catcher in the Rye, and then he followed up with his book, Franny and Zoe, and it's about this girl having a nervous breakdown, and she was just fixated on the Jesus prayer and that story, The Way of the Pilgrim. In response to that, I said, I gotta read the story. And I read that it was anthologized in volume two of this G.P. Fedotov Russian spirituality series. So I got volume two, really liked it, picked up volume three someplace, and never did find volume one. I'm gonna have to go back to Amazon now. I was buying all these things like at University of Michigan used bookstores. Ann Arbor, back in the 80s and 90s, has had a ton of just sweet used bookstores. And I, Spent hours there, and I picked those two volumes up in those bookstores. Now Amazon's here. I have to see if I can find the first volume. Anyway, you know, I ought to do a whole podcast episode on Russia. I mean, it is a fascinating hodgepodge. Russia came to the Christianity game late, uh, probably around 1,000, making it the last European nation to convert, except maybe Finland. But then again, you know, Russia came, <laughs> came late to everything. And it was because, you know, the... The Vikings slammed into Russia, went down to Volga and just wreaked havoc, set up habitations. And I don't know if it retarded <laughs> Russian culture or what, but they always seem to be late. One Russian scholar says you, you can trace the Russian cultural heritage to three cities, Kiev, Moscow, and St. Petersburg. And they all represent different things. When you look at those, they're all pretty late. In getting formed, Kiev was early. I mean, that was in the 700s. But Moscow, yeah, Moscow, which is a huge city, it's like it's like the biggest. It is the biggest city in Europe. But it's like the tenth biggest city in the world right now. But it wasn't established until 1100. Compare that like to London or Paris. I mean, that's it's a pretty new city. Then St. Petersburg, that was Peter the Great established that in the 1700s. So it's just like Russia was late to everything, including Christianity. And by the way, while we're on it, you might see a reference to Saints Cyril and Methodius. You may not know who they are. These are two saints and revered in the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. These are two saints that really ought to be on your radar screen. I, I just don't think Roman Catholics appreciate what these guys did. 
And what they did was they brought Christianity to the Slavs. Not the Slavs. <laughs> the Slavs. They translated the Bible into Slavic. I think they called it the Cyrillic alphabet, something like that. He, he actually, they took the phonetic pronunciation of the Slavs and then put it into alphabetical form and then put the Bible. I mean, this, the Bible, think that is mind numbing. Basically created their own alphabet is my understanding. And then taught the Slavs to read phonetically based on their alphabet and then put the Bible in, into that alphabet. That's, I'm no expert in this area. That's my understanding. That's the magnitude of what they did, which makes them just like scholars par excellence. But then they took it out. I mean, so then they were actually good at one-on-one. -on -one, you know, they were good at the small talk, <laughs> whatever, whatever it took to convert people. They were good at it, even though they're immense scholars. And because of them, Christianity, Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, what do you want to call it, spread into the Balkans by the Slavic people and spread into Russia. You know, in Poland is Slavic. So you, you can argue without Cyril Methodius, there's no John Paul II. Without Cyril and Methodius, you don't have Poland being the last bulwark <laughs> in the West against the Islamization of Europe and the European Union. And Poland, those guys are standing tough and they're giving the middle finger to the, the European Union. They're giving a middle finger to abortion and the secularization of European culture. They're saying, screw the Muslims. We're not going to become a Muslim culture. They say it's like one of the happiest places on earth. And you could say it's because of Cyril Methodius. Now, you could also say it's because of the Jesuits who saved it during the Counter-Reformation. Poland was on the brink, as I understand it, going, of going Protestant in the 1500s. But the Jesuits slammed into Poland and said, it ain't happening here. And save Poland from becoming, becoming Protestant. And I'm not trying to insult my Protestant brothers, by the way. But the areas of Europe that are most secular and most pro-European Union and most rollover for the Muslims loves rape us, like Sweden, <laughs> they were mostly Protestant. That's where this stuff is the worst. Anyway, I'm not trying to get political. I'm not trying to bash on the Protestants. But that is just a contemporary slash historical fact. And so you can, you can thank Cyril Methodius for getting Poland on the right, getting the Slavs in Poland on the right track. And then, of course, the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuits also keeping Poland Catholic. Now, Russia, even though it was late to the Christian game, they took a leading role in Christianity, or at least thought they did. <laughs> the Russian religious mind is a, is a bizarre thing. I love it, by the way. I don't always agree with it. I find it maddening and confusing. But man, the freaking fervor and the eccentricity of the Russian religious mind, it's really something. I probably spent way too much time reading in that vein. But it's really good stuff. And it's edifying stuff, if, if kind of weird at times. Anyway, a, a big physical thing happened in 1453 that had big metaphysical consequences in Russia. The fall of the Byzantine Empire. Or really the Roman Empire. You know, finally fell in 1453. The Ottoman Empire took it down, which was a hell of an accomplishment. If you ever get a chance to read about the fortification that was Constantinople, I honestly don't remember the details, but I know it's jaw-dropping. It's just layer upon layer of layer of, for protection for Constantinople. I mean, I don't think pe people really thought this this place will never, ever fall. You know, this before before <laughs> airplanes. You couldn't bomb it. 
remember at one point reading that there was an impen- impenetrable wall around all of Constantinople, or at least the part that wasn't bordered by the sea. And if you could get over it or under it or through it somehow, you were met on the other side by an even bigger wall that guarded the city itself. So then you were, if you were an evader, you'd be stuck in this pit between these huge walls where the defenders would, you know, rain down arrows, bricks, feces, I don't know what, the, I don't know if this is burning oil at this point yet or not, but you're just, you're just dead if you got over that first huge wall that you weren't, weren't supposed to get over at all. If you did, there's a bigger wall yet, and then you died in that pit like a pig. <laughs> but it's really something that the Ottoman Empire finally took it down, and, and a description of what they had to do to do it's pretty amazing. That is a testament, by the way, to the greatness of the Ottoman Empire. Another thing really worth reading about. That that really was a great empire. <laughs> you want to know how great it is? I think you can make the argument. In fact, I wouldn't say it's an argument. I, I, I think it is a fact and subject to argument that the fall of the Ottoman Empire is probably the single most responsible agent for the mess that is contemporary foreign politics. Not counting Woodrow Wilson. <laughs> that son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do a podcast episode of Woodrow Wilson, that guy. I mean, between the Federal Reserve and the Treaty of Versailles that led to the rise of Hitler in World War II, the income tax, and Prohibition. <laughs> this guy's an awful individual. Now, he did resist Prohibition, but gosh, he, he just he unleashed just a ton of messes that we're, we're still dealing with. But anyway, it can't be argued that the, the decline of the Ottoman Empire led to a vacuum of power in the Balkans, which led to the rise of Serbia, which led to you know, World War I, and all sorts of problems after World War II, all sorts of wars, you know, Kosovo, all those wars in the 1990s. That's all because the Ottoman Empire controlled that area, and when it fell, it left this huge vacuum. The Ottoman Empire also controlled the Middle East. <laughs> we have a huge mess there. And it's all because of the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Again, just, just a freaking testament to how powerful and big this empire was. When it declined and fell, it left the world, the entire world, with huge messes to clean up. Anyway, going back to 1453, the Ottoman Empire knocks down Constantinople. It sent shockwaves throughout Europe. Keep in mind, contemporaries didn't call it the Byzantine Empire. Now, they may have at that point, but, but they all looked at it as Rome. This is the Roman Empire. It's been around for 2,000 freaking years. Not quite. That's an exaggeration, but not much. But in Russia, was kind of shocked. Like, Constantinople fell? There's no longer a Roman Empire? But I don't, Russia didn't freak out. Their response? It said, we're now the third Rome. First you had Rome. Then you had Constantinople. And now you have Moscow. We are the third Rome. Because the fall of Constantinople was impeccable timing-wise. Because Russia... Through the Duchy of Moscow was just throwing off the control of the Mongols. The Mongols, through its descendants, the Golden Horde. That's a great name, by the way, the Golden Horde. Not to be confused with the Golden Shower. (laughs) For my postmodernist fans out there who want to invert the urine-soaked versus the non-urine-soaked binary. No, it's the Golden Horde, not, not the Golden Shower. But the Russians were in the process of throwing them off at that time and coming into their own. Combined with Constantinople falling, they said, hey, we're not, a, we're not a third Rome. First Rome fell to the barbarians, and because Roman Catholic Church fell into heresy, this is the belief of the, <laughs> of the Russian Orthodox Church, by the way, not mine, obviously. 
Constantinople, they said, fell because in the 1430s, Eastern Orthodox representatives at the Council of Florence had agreed to various compromises with the Roman Catholic Church, including recognizing the prerogatives of the papacy. That's in shockwaves about the Eastern Orthodox Church as well. People couldn't believe that the Eastern Orthodox Church had agreed to these things. They thought they were heretical. And Moscow said, yeah, because of heresy, you fell to the Turks, to the Ottoman Empire. So now Russia will take over, and it will be the third Rome, and it will rule until the second coming of Christ. Because in Christianity, everything's in threes because of the Trinity. If you're the third of anything, you're the last of it. And that was Moscow's, that was Moscow's belief. We are the third Rome. We will stay Rome until the second coming of Christ. And they gave them this messianic vision of itself, which would inform Russian spirituality for the next 500 years. Related to this, the Russian Tsar, you know, which is, which is short for Caesar, looked at himself as the emperor, just like the Byzantine emperor was. Keep in mind, Constantine called the first ecumenical council. The Byzantine emperor and religion were always kind of tied together. Not kind of, they were tied together. And now the Russian Tsar looked at himself as a protector of religion, as the promoter of religion, tied together yet again, which gave him secular and religious powers or responsibilities, or duties, or rights, whatever you want to call it. It's not a good thing, by the way, but that's how they looked at it. This messianic vision had, like, its secular counterpart. You may know that the United States had this thing called Manifest Destiny, where they thought they were the United States government was destined to rule all of what we call the United States from the East Coast to the West Coast. And many people thought that Manifest Destiny would also extend to the rest of the hemisphere. Russia had the exact same thought, which was fueled by its its religious mission that they thought they inherited in 1453, just like the United States Manifest Destiny thought they were a unique city on the hill, whatever the Puritans called it. The United States thought they had a unique calling from God to take over the entire hemisphere, or at least east coast to west coast here in the United States. They thought they had this manifest destiny. Russia thought it had the same thing for the entire freaking continent <laughs> in Asia. From the North Pole down the, to the Indian Ocean, over to the Pacific Ocean. They thought they were supposed to rule all of Asia. That belief extended very strongly into the 19th century as the Ottoman Empire declined. Heading into the 20th century, Russia eagerly filled those gaps. <laughs> Just as the Balkans descended into all sorts of chaos, the Middle East started descending into chaos, and Russia was there to fill the gap, and they thought this is this is our manifest destiny. This is what we're supposed to do as a third Rome, expand and take over all of Asia, make it Eastern Orthodox. If you're like me, sometimes you hear about Russia getting involved in some sort of you know, Afghanistan or something else and kind of think, geez, that's 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 kind of our job to be to be pains in the asses and <laughs> and Budinskis in the Middle East. Now, Russia was doing 100 years before we got there. In fact, that was one of Britain's primary foreign policy goals in the 19th century and early 20th century, which is to keep Russia at bay, knowing that Russia had this messianic takeover all of Asia type vision. So the British, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, they were like resisting the Russians at every opportunity. All right, let's wrap up with some lightning segments. Hey, if you're not reading the Babylon Bee, you probably ought to start checking it out. It's like the religious right alternative to the onion. 
It has a lot of very good stuff in it. I guess there's a problem in a lot of evangelical churches with their, their music getting out of control. <laughs> I'm not evangelical, so I don't know anything about this. But there's an article in the Babylon Bee, which is not Catholic, by the way. It's just, I think it's evangelical sarcasm, Protestant sarcasm, whatever you want to call it. But I get the, get the impression maybe the music's getting out of control. This satirical article says that churches are scheduling 70-minute drum solos in honor of Neil Peart, which the article says is longer than a typical 45-minute drum solos that these evangelical churches normally have. <laughs> hey, they, they have a, this uh, supposed quote from one of the drummers. I can't think of a better send-off for the great one than building up into a solo on my 17th floor toms, pounding on my triple bass pedal that I definitely need, and then just going absolutely wild on my 67 cymbals, said Grace Hollis Community Church drummer Bob Ward. Solos like this will honor a great drummer and bring glory to God through my epic music skills. <laughs> I would tell you, a lot of the old Christian rock scene, which I just... It's kind of oxymoronic to me, and, I, and I'm not versed enough in music to defend that statement, so don't engage me in debate. I won't engage you about <laughs> something about Christian rock, given you know Mick Jagger's statement at the advent of the modern rock movement after the 50s, you know, that rock and roll is music you F to. <laughs> it just seems incongruous. To have a thing called Christian rock, and now that you have these evangelical churches have these big bands <laughs> not big bands like Glenn Miller, by the way, but these big rock bands with these huge drum solos, apparently. <laughs> Hopefully, there's gonna be, they're starting a backlash against it, but none of my business. So, I broke down and had a few drinks Friday night, about five. And I thought, you know, I wasn't going to drink during January, except maybe one or two drinks here or there out of what I call charity drinking to make the people around me more comfortable. And this was charity drinking, but I had five of them. And I thought, you know, maybe I have a drinking problem. About four seconds later, I was like, nah, I have too many drinking opportunities. (laughs) Not a problem. (laughs) So I'm still doing a good job at limiting myself to just drinking charitably or what they call social drinking the problem is Marie uh, we like to have a few drinks together if I'm having a few drinks with Marie then she's kind of out drinking by herself (laughs) so I guess that makes her an an enabler alright I'm going to say something that I think is heretical hats off to Hollywood (laughs) I'm going to go vomit they cranked out five movies in 2019 that I really liked or loved. The Joker, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, The Irishman, Yesterday, and Now Little Woman. Chesky, you fag! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went and my, I took my, took my youngest daughter to Little Woman. She couldn't go with Marie and her older sister and she's really bummed out. She wants him to take her. Her older brother said he would, then he couldn't. So I said, I'll, I'll take her little women. But to be honest, I was going to take her anyway. And I really liked it. It was just a splendid movie. One smidgen of a PC slice. But other than that, just, just a nice, wholesome, 
fun movie. Slow. I mean, don't get me wrong. It was like you know, this wasn't a shoot 'em up, burn 'em type <laughs> type movie by any stretch. But it was it was it was just thoroughly enjoyable in a feel good type of way. And on top of those five movies, by the way, I'm told that I'm going to love 1917 when I see it, and I have every intention of seeing it when it comes to my local theater. And I'm told Ford vs. Ferrari is really good. So that makes seven freaking movies. 2019 might go down as a year Hollywood threw off the hegemony of Marvel superheroes, remakes, and woke movies. <laughs> and then again, we did have Charlie's Angels. <laughs> but I do have faith in Hollywood. <laughs> Joe Rogan said, go woke, go broke. And Hollywood is. All their socialist and left-wing platitudes aside, they're mercenaries. It is a capitalist endeavor. They're there to make tons and tons and tons of money. As Ricky Gervais pointed out in the Gold Globes, if ISIS had a streaming service, they'd be contacting their agents about getting gigs on them. <laughs> so if the woke stuff doesn't sell, apparently they're just getting hammered. Those woke movies, people are tired of seeing these like amazing women superheroes or whatever. Although I don't mind the women superheroes because they're not real. But, you know, the, the female 007 and crap like that and fighting men taking them out, it just, I don't know. It strikes me as kind of absurd. But I liked Wonder Woman. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, in this regard, I'm slowly working my way through tacky Theodocropolis's book, Nothing to Desire. And I think I pronounced that name properly. <laughs> Theodicropolis. He, he wrote this autobiography back in the 80s about the time he spent in a British prison for po- cocaine possession. But throughout this autobiography, he has various flashbacks at earlier stages of his life. And he knew quite a few people in Hollywood. And here's what he said about Hollywood. Quote, Countless books and films have told of the ghastliness of the place, its false values and wrong priorities. Yet Hollywood goes on unperturbed. If in a thousand years' time, sociologists and anthropologists unearthed the reasons for Western culture having taken a nosedive somewhere in the second half of the 20th century, Hollywood would finally receive the historical and cultural recognition it well deserves, unquote. <laughs> Tacky is great, by the way. I, I, I've been reading them since, I think I was like 16. My dad used to get the American Spectator, and Tacky had a, had a column in there. And he did, all he does is write about his, his life as a playboy. I mean, he was the wealthy playboy poster boy of the 20th century. And it was fun to read about his life. I mean, he's rubbing, rubbing elbows with all the socialites and influential figures. It's like all tennis. He, he competed in the Davis Cup. I think he's even at Wimbledon. He didn't get very far. But, I mean, he was like a very good tennis player. So it was all tennis and drinking, drugs, and banging beautiful women. And here, Tacky write about it. Like these are the women that are so good looking, they don't need to become supermodels. They could be, but they're so freaking good looking and wealthy, they don't need to, to go there. Kind of reminds me of Rod Stewart. He married, I believe, it was Rachel Hunter. You know, the real good looking model from the 1980s. And they had daughters, and one of them's good looking, and she wanted to become a supermodel. And Rod Stewart's like, "Screw that!" And I guess he's quite angry. He's like, you, "You don't need to flaunt your body and be out there strutting your stuff." to get money he goes you, I mean, you have a ton of money because I'm Rod freaking Stewart and your mama's Rachel Hunter you have her good looks and you have all our money you don't need to do that that's kind of who Tacky hung out with these really good looking women 
who didn't need to go out there and be supermodels, and they, they just banged wealthy playboys like Tacky. <laughs> but that was Tacky's life. Then he also threw into there some uh, <laughs> Greek Orthodox religion and railing against liberals who he thoroughly dislikes. If you want to read his latest enterprise, go to Tacky Magazine. It is a no-holds-barred online magazine that doesn't need to be popular because, well, <laughs> Tacky presumably finances it and doesn't need your money. <laughs> so, it might be the last honest place on earth, Tacky. <laughs> Tacky.com or Tacky. TackyMag.com. Tacky, T-A-K-I. So, I mean, it's writers. You know, I mean, honestly, they're writers at Tacky. They make me squirm sometimes. It's like, whoa, gosh, man, that sounds awfully racial if not racist or this other things are just over the top dirty that was like gosh I don't want my kids reading this even I don't want my kids seeing me read it but boy it is an honest magazine and these writers they're smart they're well read their prose is beautiful and they don't give a rip about what people think and they lay it out there so I definitely would strongly recommend Tacky Mag You know, and there is there is a movement in these lines. It's like, we're, we're going to start writing and saying things that we're not supposed to write and say. I, I think there is a humongous backlash building up against the whole woke and cancel culture. And I think it's just freaking beautiful. You, you're seeing the cracks. Last Bill Bird Netflix special. The Dave Chappelle special. Tacky Mag. Out Though the Unregistered podcasts With Thaddeus Russell in there. More and more people are saying, we're just, just, you know, we're going to say it. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be the N-word. Maybe it's going to be the R-word. Maybe it's going to be the F-word, you know, faggot. It's gonna be, these are things we're not supposed to say. We're going to start saying them. We've had it with the cancel culture, and I say I'm into that. I want to say, you know, the N-word. I won't say that even. <laughs> I'm too intimidated. <laughs> I want to start saying retard and faggot more and more. Ah, probably not. My wife will get down on me. <laughs> and besides, I do think the Weekly Demon has some of this... I guess counterculture, but I'm not sure it's counterculture is the right word, but almost cultural revolutionary type fervor. I think there's some of that here at the Weekly Demon, just without the town or the bravery. <laughs> Alright, that's it for this week. As always, thanks for listening. 